Hello, readers. Nate Ebner is a two-sport athlete who is the only person to ever compete in the Olympics as an active NFL player and then go on to win a Super Bowl. In his 10 years in the NFL, he has won three Super Bowls with the New England Patriots before spending the past two years with the New York Giants. That other sport is rugby, for which Nate represented the United States at the 2016 Summer Olympics in Rio. But that barely scratches the surface of Nate's story, which he has detailed in the inspiring and at times heartbreaking memoir, Finish Strong, A Father's Code and a Son's Path. Nate, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. So what was your goal with this book? Ooh, big question. Um, what was my goal? My goal was first and foremost to tell an authentic story, a genuine story of really um, just an honest take on, on my sports journey. Um, along with that, really honoring my father and, and the high quality parent that he was and human being that he was but like I said most importantly the parent that he was to me and father figure um I think that was step one you know tell tell an honest take a genuine take and, and really honor the, the father that I had um after that it was I hope to inspire people through you know my journey and um you know, a little bit out of that is out of my control because, yeah, you know, I, I don't know. Over the years, I've had, I've, I've been with so Ohio State and all these, you know, sports teams, and and you you hear all these motivational speakers, and one of the most important things to me was telling an authentic story. Um, you know, you hear so many people tailor their stories to try to inspire, but it just comes across so. Uh, insincere almost fake you know so at least for me it was and that was something I didn't want to do so um but I hoped that you know by telling my story and, and kind of what I went through and my mindset uh to get through some of the tough things that people can relate to that and um hopefully like I said it inspires people to uh to to chase after things um that they want for themselves regardless of what anyone thinks about it your dad, Jeff, uh, when reading about him, struck me as a great human being and an even better dad. Personally, I love the idea of ordering dessert before the rest of the meal, but your mom and dad divorced when you were really young, Nate, but you still saw your dad nearly every day as a kid, despite him living a two-hour round trip away. How was his commitment to you rooted in his own parent shortcomings when he was a child? Um, that's a good question. Um you know, I, I wasn't around when he was a kid. I, I don't know. I, you know, I know he had divorced parents. Obviously, my grandparents were not together. Um, but uh, I think, um, you know, maybe I, I can't speak to that. I can't speak for him that maybe he was, you know, doing something he might have missed out on. I know there was times where he wasn't with his dad. And, um, you know, ultimately, I think, uh you know, it, it really just spoke to the love that he had for me as, as his child and just how important I was to him for the sacrifice that he made to, to be there for everything. Um, I think uh, in, in layman's terms, that's what it was about was really just him focusing on how much, you know, he loved his kid and he wanted to be there for him and he wanted to show that love through his, you know, his uh, presence um, and, and always, always being there. And uh, that went a long way. Um, you know, I can't, I can't speak to his underlying reasonings or anything like that, but uh, he, he was always there and, and he, you know, put in more time, you know, driving, getting to me uh, than, than we'd even spend sometimes nice together. So uh, very dedicated father figure. And like we talked about earlier, I hope to inspire people, but I hope to inspire parents to, to be better parents and, and, really know what type of impact you know influences their child and that is the time you spend with them yeah I have a seven and five-year-old at home uh seven-year-old daughter five-year-old son and I can only hope that my relationship with them is anywhere close to the one that you and your dad had and you guys were really connected by two activities more than anything else Nate rugby and working out what was it about rugby that connected the two of you well I mean rugby was one of those things he uh you know, he played rugby, so I did whatever my dad did. You know, he was, uh, you know, a young kid. You just do whatever your, your dad does. He's Superman to you. And um, But, 
as I got older and I played rugby a lot, I actually became pretty good at it. And um, it was just kind of one of those things that we really enjoyed together. Um, towards the end of it all, I mean, I became a pretty good, skillful player. I can't really, you know, when people talk about my dad as a rugby player, they wouldn't say like highly skilled. They would just say very violent and aggressive. And, you know, that was his bag. That's why he liked to play. That's he liked to hit people. You know, I'd say in the book, you know, um, you know, where else can you go, you know, beat the crap out of somebody all day and not go to jail. And that was why he played rugby. And that's what he loved about it. And for me, you know, having that same blood in my veins, I obviously had to had to like the physical side of it. But there was a side of rugby that I got my got my eyes open to. Um, through some really high quality players at a young age that made me experience the game in a way, you know, I could argue he maybe never experienced. So uh, it was an introduction to a sport I turned out to love, but I think, you know, we shared the violence of it. We liked that and, and the scoring and the passing and the work, but um, at the end of it all, I would say I, I loved it for almost different, different reasons, hmm. but we both loved it. So it was fun. Why was working out a really good metaphor for what your dad valued in life? Uh, because, I mean, what a, what a big question, great question, um, that I could answer a bunch of different ways, and I don't want to make it long-winded, but ultimately, uh, you know, every day you got to work, wake up and go to work. Uh, the work doesn't do itself. Um, you know, I talked about that in the book, you know, the cars won't crush themselves. You got to go, go get them crushed and load the semi trucks. And, and the weight room was kind of the same way. If you wanted to grow, if you wanted to get stronger, you had to put the work in to do it. It wasn't, you know, it's an accountability to you want something in your life. You want some type of change. You have to show up every day to do it, to get the results that you want. And I think that was the biggest, biggest message. I mean, there are so many metaphors to why, um, you know, working out was, was such a um, tablet of my dad's character's values, you know, and, and why they were important, you know, working hard, not giving in, you know, there's so many things I could talk about, but for me, the big picture one was the accountability as to yeah, if you want to change, you want, you want growth, you want something different that you don't get to do it when you feel good. You don't get to do it, um, you know, once a week or when everybody else is there, it's something you really want. You need to dedicate yourself to it and you need to show up every day um, to, to get the results that you want. And, and that was the biggest one for me. Your dad was really a walking motivational quote machine. Uh, you just mentioned one of them that is uh, you have to want your body to be something it's not. You devote yourself to that every single day, which you just talked about. Another that uh, really struck me as incredible is if you can suffer through the pain, the glory will last forever. What does that mean to you? Um, well, we're just hearing that. I just instantly think of the rowing machine. Um, <laughs> but like the, it was always about putting in the work kind of in the same way as the weight room, you know, putting in that work and, and, and suffering in that moment of cardio, typically that was a cardio reference, but like it's, a, it can be generalized into a bunch of different things, but specifically I think of, you know, the burn of, of cardio where you're, you can't breathe and your legs are on fire and, you know, you're struggling and, and everything in your body is telling you to give in. And to, you know, let's pull back. You can't breathe. You know, your legs hurt. Like everything is screaming at you. But if you can suffer through that, those moments and finish those workouts, when he's referring to the glory he's referring to, when you get on that field, you're, you know, everybody else is going to be burning before you. Everybody else is going to, their lungs are, 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 are going to be burning before yours. And everyone else is going to be thinking about quitting before you will. And ultimately that's going to give you more success on the field, which, will result in glory and um that's kind of his thing like suffer the suffer the pain now in the weight room and in, in the in the in the cardio sessions you know if you can die for it here then when you get on the field there's no way anyone else is going to outlast you and that way you'll have success and you'll the the glory of those wins will last forever and they do
you've epitomized that throughout your life. Now, your dad ran a junkyard that had been in the family for three generations, and it eventually specialized in junked cars. How much fun was this for you to get to hang around in as a kid? Oh, yeah, the junkyard was an absolute playground for me as a child. I mean, um, you know, I I could have my friends come up. We'd paintball. We'd, uh, you know, shoot. I could shoot BB guns at windows and hammer hammer cars with, you know, hammers and baseball bats, breaking windows. I mean, I had dirt bikes and go-karts. We'd go around. Uh, it just really a great place for me to keep me busy and, um, you know, half the time I didn't even need any friends. I would just busy myself with the dirt bikes or, you know, um, beating up cars. And it was just, a, it was ultimately a, <coughs> a playground for me. Um, you know, just, just when I, when I think back on it, it was like really normal in my mind. But then, you know, when I really think back on it and all the other kids around me, they lived in suburban neighborhoods or whatever. And, you know, they go play ball with their friends and go back home you know maybe jumped on a trampoline in their backyard you know and I just was out there like craziness you know um so I, but what a great place for me to expel energy to, to stay distracted by you know good things to stay active and then ultimately that playground turned into a transition of like a place of work and um like we spoke about accountability character some discipline, um, hard work ethic, those types of things came in into play as I got of age, you know, my, my dad wasn't going to let me, uh, you know, just have a free lunch and play around the whole time. Eventually it was, uh, you know, you got to contribute a little bit here. So it, it turned into that, but, but what a, what a great place for, for, for me and for him and, you know, really just the upbringing that I had. Dude, what is it that's so, incredible about just breaking a window I as a kid and i still i mean I, I don't go out or go around breaking many windows as an adult but uh, i've had yeah. the, the uh, occasional opportunity to do so it's just so satisfying it's, i was just gonna say it's one of those oddly satisfying things once it's broke it's broke though it's, <laughs> that's not something you can fix it's got to be replaced uh yeah or just taking a baseball bat or, or hammer and just put a massive dent in the side of a, a perfectly good car yeah i don't know i don't know it's fun I haven't done that yet. I may have to try that next week. So your dad never really got angry or yelled at you, which let me tell you, as a parent of a seven, five-year-old, that is a difficult task. But when he punished you, man, did it hurt. What were the consequences you faced for getting caught slingshotting rocks and acorns at passing cars around the age of 12 or 13? Yeah, that was uh, one of the few times I got in trouble pretty good. But um, no, yeah, like you said, he wasn't a big screamer. If, if he started to get calm and soft spoken that's when you get nervous you know he was one of those types uh instead of the rage it was almost focused energy and that that was almost scarier um but yeah i i remember like you said some cars got hit with some slingshots with some rocks and stuff and uh you know basically got caught and uh my dad <coughs> my dad was like you know pretty upset about it but uh he was like, all right, this is what we're going to do. He, he sent me outside, gave me some construction paper scissors, you know, for like a kindergarten kid or something. And he, he's like, I want you to cut, cut the, cut the grass in the backyard. And, you know, I just looked at him. He's like, yep, get, get to work. So I just had to get on my hands and knees and I'm just like sitting there with scissors. I, I probably got like a couple laps around the, the whole yard and like, two or three hours and he was like all right that's enough of that then I had to go uh run some run some sprints I had to get the cleats on and and uh we went to a couple different hills in, in Springfield uh, our famous you know hill hill running sessions that are were typically by choice and um you know yeah he it wasn't like a of like forced punishment but it was like the, Typically, when we would run hills, I would choose to do it. But that did. I remember the one time it was like, "We're going to run hills as punishment right now," and and that was a that was a fun time. Well, you know, as fun as it could be. The water tower, um, Penn Street Hill. We hit three different spots in Springfield. Hit a couple of them, and it just you really drug out the whole day where I just didn't get to have fun. I'm on my hands and knees. I'm running sprints, and 
just thinking about what I did wrong all day long. And but once it was over with, you know, he was the type of person like we're we're done with it, Let's put it behind us. But uh, he was creative when it came to punishments. That's for sure. I'm assuming you never threw another rock or acorn at a passing never again. I didn't do it again. So back I'm to the, it again. That's, that's <laughs> so back to the uh, junkyard dealing with robbers and thieves was the biggest problem that y'all had to deal with there. How did your dad handle these scumbags? Um, with citizens justice, I guess you could call it. Um, he would always say, I have to make a citizen's arrest, but um, uh, it was brutal. I would say I, you, you know, if you were, stealing from us and it was one of the days we were going to search for robbers that was a mistake for some of those guys I mean he would uh he would unleash quite a bit of force on uh on them and I would definitely say it was excessive but I mean you're you're stealing so who are they going to believe you know and um he tried to it wasn't almost like just mad at you know, whatever guy's stealing, it was almost to send a message to everyone that comes in here. If, if you steal, this is the result that it's going to be for you. And, um, you know, we would, uh, we, we, you know, the, the yard was your typical nine to five or eight to five. Um, and when it closed, that's when the scumbags would come out. Um, we knew when they'd be there, we knew where the holes in the yard were, you know, instead of patching up the holes in the yard and the fence where people could get in, he left them. So he knew there was only a place or two they could escape from. And we knew where they were. Um, and, uh, he used it to his advantage and we would, you know, we'd put the cleats on, we'd, uh, stretch a little bit, you know, I'd go one way, he'd go the other, I'd make a bunch of noise and ask, ask them what they're doing in the yard. And then they'd take off running and, you know, they ran the wrong way into him. So, uh, yeah, it got, uh, it got pretty aggressive, <laughs> but, um, you know, that's how he handled it. You know, why I, there were Springfields, wasn't a great area, you know, it's called the police. They weren't going to do anything. They weren't worried about people stealing, you know, alternators or whatever they were stealing windshield wipers. Who knows what they were stealing. Right. I mean, the, the police didn't, there were bigger issues in Springfield, Ohio than, some some thieves in the junkyard so you know he handled it the way he wanted to handle it and that's that's what we did chasing robbers was kind of like a a weekend thing on sundays if we did especially if we didn't play rugby you know so quite the sunday ritual how did the yeah. two words it's fine explain your dad so well why because that was uh his mindset about pretty much everything in life you know, uh, the, the concept of uh, over, you know, worrying, uh, you know, I'd say, especially nowadays, you think about the, the way people um, you know, flood themselves with worry and concern over things out of their control, or things that just really don't matter that much. Um, you know, it's like crying about the rain. Hmm. You know, um, he was like, whatever it is, it is, it's fine. You know, it'll be fine. You know, as soon as someone started to worry, you know, eh, it's fine. It's not a big deal. And, um, just really the idea behind in a way it was stoic, the, the stoicism idea of control, what you can control and, um, things out of your control, um, to sit and worry about them, uh, was a waste of energy and he would just, it's fine. I think at the same time, it's, it shows the, the depth of the human that is there for the meaning of things in life and, and the relationships, not the superficial, uh, what it looks like or how things appear aesthetically, you know, those things don't matter. Um, and the grand scheme of things and the depth and the connection that you have with whatever it is that you're doing in life. Um, you know, if the car starts and gets you from A to B, it's fine. It did its job and goal is to get you there. And, uh, it's just a simple way of thinking, but it was applied to everything. And, um, again, very, very clear as a young observant child kid to this man, who's everything was fine when he would say it, you know, uh, 
you think you'd think in society as a kid i'd look at some some instances where i'd be like this isn't fun you know the uh the the, the air conditioner doesn't work and we're you know it's it's hot outside or something or some some scenario where you would you would think society would say this isn't fine but he would be like no nah, it's it is fine it'll, it'll do just fine we're tubing on a uh, instead of like a real two inner tube in the reservoir we're tubing on some tire tube he got from the junkyard and he clamped it with a rope and we're hanging on basically five percent of our body on the tube the rest of it in the water you know it's fun and um just gave you that perspective of of life of what's important and what's not really and uh, you know that it, that became very clear to me at a young age as to where to focus my energy and my concerns and my concerns with things that I could influence the things that I could change the things that do matter which is like the work I put in how I treat people um you know the respect I give to others and, and to certain things the you know I could go on and on about that the discipline and accountability I have in my own life towards the you know what matters to me not you know, what's my outfit look like and are my shoes cool enough? You know, they very learned that very early on because all of that stuff is, it's fine. Hmm. So as you mentioned a little bit earlier, you became a really good rugby player as a team. So when and why did you decide to transition to football, a sport that you had not played since eighth grade? Um, I decided to transition to football. Um, <coughs> right after the fall season of my sophomore year in college I had just finished my final junior world cup with the USA under 20s and uh, that was in Wales in 2008 and I played fall rugby at Ohio State after playing so much international rugby and then going back to playing club rugby I was just I wanted more I wanted to see you know, what levels I could reach athletically. And, um, you know, I didn't have a really a professional future in rugby in the United States, and I didn't want to live in a different country. Um, I had a couple more years of college left, and I knew I was going to still be here or in the United States. And, um, you know, it, it was kind of the perfect storm. Um, I wanted to play football my senior year in high school. I chose not to because of the junior World Cups. Um, my high school team went on to win the division one state championship, um, went to Ohio state in itself is the, one of the meccas of, you know, them in Alabama, the meccas of football in this country. All you do is hear about Ohio state football, this Ohio state football, that, and it just got old to me. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm stuck in this rugby rut, if you will, where I, I don't see a future, but athletically, you know, I, I know I'm athletic. I'm playing against the best rugby players in the world. So I'm like, you know, F it. Let's, let's go play football at Ohio State. And uh, that was actually the last conversation I had with my father before he passed was about me walking on to the football team at Ohio State. And ultimately, I, I went that direction. Um, you know, kind of with, with his blessing, but really because of, of that perfect storm of, of a scenario that just made me want to seek more for myself. And even with all the naysayers and people that were thought that was crazy or whatever, I, I didn't really care because I believed in myself and I wanted to find out. How did Jeff take to your football idea? A lot better than I thought he would. Um, you know, it was very positive. I think he could tell I was extremely serious about it. It wasn't just kind of like a, hey, dad, I think I want to play football. Like, what do you think about that? It was kind of like, a, you know, I've been thinking about this a long time. This is kind of what my rugby path looks like right now. It's not very uh, palatable to me. Um, and this is kind of, you know, I'm at Ohio State. Let's like, why not? You know, and uh Ultimately, he was really well received and enthusiastic. And he was kind of like, you know, Nate, if you're going to do this, do it all the way. Don't try to kind of play rugby <coughs> in the off seasons, you know, or, or just give everything you have to football and, and see what you can do with it. And, um, you know, I told him, I think 
if I could play at Ohio State, I knew if I could play at Ohio State, I could play in the NFL. I mean, it was like all these people play in the NFL from these different schools, but Ohio State, like I said, Ohio State, Alabama, there's just a couple that, you know, if you could play there, just is so competitive, you could you could play in the NFL. And I, I had mentioned that to him that, you know, that was the ultimate goal. And I think, uh, you know, after that conversation, he like I said, it was well-received. He was on board. He was supportive of it. Uh, his thing was just, if you're going to do it, do it all the way. Um, don't don't try to dip your toe in and kind of stay with rugby at the same time. Let's just just give everything you have to it. Rugby will always be there if, if football doesn't work out. And so I did. But the next day uh, is when he was you know attacked at the at the yard. So. Yeah, it's tragic. Attacked at the yard, uh, ends up in a coma in the hospital. You actually make it to see him mm-hmm. uh, in that comatose state, and then he died the very next day. Nate, I'm so right. sorry about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate that, but, uh, no, it's, um, yeah, that was tough. Um, that was tough. That put me in a, in a, in a dark spot. You know, I sit here, I write a book about my dad, my relationship with this, uh, this person that obviously I idolize, but it's not just a normal father son relationship. I mean, I'd put our relationship up against anyone's. It, it was, uh, you know, such a bond it's it was more than a friendship it was more than a father-son love it was it was both times times 10 and and as a as a young man you know your your foundation your rock the one person in your life that's more important than any one thing or any one other person out there or all of it combined uh, is gone and now and, and and gone in a way that no one should lose anyone uh, might I add, you know, that kind of derailed me um, for for some time. I ended up dropping out of school for that semester or quarter, I think we were in at the time. And um, really, I tried to keep going, but <coughs> couldn't really just couldn't focus, you know, and uh, I was in a I was in a very bad place for for some time until, you know, I don't know if you want me to elaborate on that, but my mom was, uh, you know, my saving grace. And uh, again, comes back to the parents uh, doing what they have to do. Um, but, you know, that was probably the biggest moment in my life. I was close to going down a really dark path, um, you know, kind of starting to feel sorry for myself. Uh, didn't understand it, you know not really moving forward anymore just stuck in this repeated cycle of you wake up you know you want you think about your daddy's gone then you think about everything that's happened and then you just it's just a bad place to be but you know my mom came in one day to me uh after probably three or four weeks of just you know moping around um and she was in tears uh just trying to get the words out of her mouth to say to me, you know, Nate, um, you can't keep living like this. And your dad would, wouldn't want to see you like this. He want to see you live a life that he would be proud of that you would be proud of. And he wouldn't want to see your whole life get ruined because he's not there anymore. As hard as that is for me to say, as she said, like, you need to get on with it because he would want you to get on with it and you can't let this derail your whole life. Like he wouldn't want that for you. So you got to live a life that he'd be proud of. And, you know, for her to say that to me in that moment, um, you know, was probably the biggest moment in my life. It took a lot of strength, not only as a, as a, as a mother, but as a woman who, you know, who's got a tough, you know, son who plays sports and works out with his dad and chases robbers for a living, you know, she had to, she had to get me going in the right direction. And uh, I'm just so thankful for that moment and that I have such a strong mother in my life because I, you know, I, I allude to this in the book that I, I have other friends who lost parents and lost things and things went bad in their life. And, you know, they didn't have that strength of a figure in their life to say, I know this sucks. I empathize with you. I sympathize for everything you're going through, but we need to get on with it. And, and when we got, we got to find a way to go forward. And, um, 
you know, I just think about some of those other situations with those kids where they just had parents who coddled them and comforted them because they just couldn't stand to see their child in the pain. So they just did what they thought would make them feel good. And, you know, I had a mom who said, you know, it's not about that. It's about the rest of his life. And just, again, I'm so grateful for that. And, you know, to wrap up this long-winded answer, I, I, to live a life he would be proud of, um, that was something that always stuck with me at, at, you know, I lost him at 19, uh, a month before my 20th birthday. To that point, we were kind of best friends. And, and I really thought that my mindset changed in that moment was that how lucky was I to have such a great human being, such a great father figure, such a great man to lead me every day um, to teach me how to, how to be a man. And I had him until I was 19. You know, I was, uh, I was developed, you know, the last few years, I wish I had more. I wish I had him now, but those last few years, we were just kind of best friends. I was, I was about to be 20. I was, you know, coming in to being a, a man, you know, um, I know people who lost parents at six, at 13, right when they're about to be, they need a man more than ever in their life. You know, I, I had him all the way up there. I was so grateful that the, the amount of time he packed into those 19 years together and, and, and 11 months together that we had. Um, I have more life with him than people whose parents lived to be 80 something, you know? So I was just very grateful for who he was uh, to me and having him for as long as I did. And I just chose to be grateful. Ultimately it was the mindset to be grateful for what I had, understand it, appreciate it, and just be genuinely grateful for it. And that made my, that that helped me move forward. Beautiful answer there. Thank you for that. And by the way, two of my favorite sentences in this book are my dad was the co-founder of my spirit my mom relit it. Now, uh, once she did have that conversation with you, you picked yourself up, you refocused on that goal of walking on at Ohio State and eventually living out those NFL dreams. You busted your ass for several weeks before walk-on tryouts at Ohio State. What were those walk-on workouts like, Nate? Yeah, those uh, those walk-on workouts at Ohio State were some of the toughest things that uh, uh, I've ever done. I mean, to this day, I mean, obviously training for the Olympics was hard. Um, playing in the NFL for 10 years, we did some hard things. But even the three years at Ohio State, we did hard stuff. But those were walk-on workouts. They, they were there to break you, to make you quit, to really see <clears throat> if you wanted to be a Buckeye, if you wanted to be on this football team. Um, as you know did you just want to put the jersey on so you could tell your friends because these were too hard to go through if if not um if, if you weren't about really helping this team and um yeah it was two weeks right after the walk-on tryout they probably picked like 15 or so guys I don't remember exactly what I wrote but some something like that 15 or so guys got selected so we had two weeks of workouts um you know one of the more daunting things I remember were the walking lunges. I think I spoke about in the book where we had started on one sideline of the football field and we had to, every step had to be a lunge. And we, I had 60 and 70 pound dumbbells. Um, we had, you know, 50 to 70 pound dumbbells and we had one in each hand and we had to do a lunge every step all the way across the field and back. And, and no one could drop a dumbbell. And I just remember doing those and I kept getting like halfway across and back and someone would drop one and we all had to start over and we did, we had to start over like two or three times. And then I, I got to the point where I just kind of like gathered everyone. I was like, look, I'm going to get all the way across and back. And if you feel like you're going to drop it, just like sit into a squat and hold them on your thighs. Just don't drop the dumbbells. Like I'm going to finish. And then I'm going to come like, no one said I couldn't hold the dumbbells for you. So you know, me and another guy that were able to do that, we got it done. And then we would run out and like hold the dumbbells so people could shake their arms out. And, you know, the coaches were kind of like, oh, we didn't say they couldn't do that. And uh, that got us through. But 
Dude, I could remember I couldn't walk after that. That was such a monstrous. I mean, doing. I mean, we probably did three or four sets of across and back with seventy pound dumbbells in each hand. I mean, that's just ridiculous amount of lunges. Um, Dude, yeah, it was. That, it was that, crazy stuff. That, that sounds like hell. Just doing farmers walks across the field and back, much less having to add lunges into the whole thing. Yeah, it was one of those things. You go. There's no way we're going to be able to do this. And it's almost like they sat in a room and were like, what can we think of that they, they definitely won't be able to do? Cause like even thinking about it now, I did it. And I still am like, I just don't know how you just do one step at a time and you just keep going one step at a time. And eventually like you do it, but I just, uh, that was, that was crazy. That was a crazy one, <coughs> but sorry. Um, but um, yeah, it was, a lot of stuff like that to try to break your will and uh really you know and we did that we did that for two weeks we did crazy stuff like that for two weeks um and they just you know by the time we were done there were about i think four to six of us left and there were 15 or so plus going into those workouts and you know that was just to make the team so we could practice and work out with the rest of the team and then once we were there then you had to go actually play football and, um, you know, through that, that got whittled down. I mean, by the time we made it to fall, there were about three guys, two or three guys that, you know, made it through the, the actual walk-on process to, uh, to, to, the, to the fall and were standing on the sideline or whatever, playing in the games. And, um, you know, it's, it's just – it's different than being a preferred walk-on. You know, most walk-ons, you hear, eh, they're a walk-on. They're a preferred walk-on. They basically come in like a scholarship athlete they're treated like a scholarship athlete. They're just not on scholarship, but everything about them is, is treated as if they were a normal player. We were the scum of the earth walk-ons that, you know, came from the street and we wanted to play. And they were like, well, we're going to make this as impossibly hard for you to make it here as we can. And, and, and if you do make it through, you probably won't even play. You'll just be fodder. And uh, that's just, you know, they, those football programs are, are machines, man. They're recruiting high school kids, five-star recruits. They're trying to win national championships. They're not worried about the next uh, walk-on from the street that's going to somehow impact that program. I mean, multi, multi, multi-million dollar program where they're just recruiting and scouting and all this stuff. And, you know, they don't have plans for the, for the, for the rugby kid who decides to come in and see what he can do with the team. So, um, what an experience, though. Navy SEALs have hell week. Apparently, the Ohio State walk-on program has hell off-season, right? Absolutely. So the title of this book, Finish Strong, played an important role in you truly becoming a part of the Buckeye program. Why was this, and what do those two words mean to you, Nate? Finish Strong? Yes. Well, um, I mean, to answer that first, finish strong is a, was, was kind of one of those, you know, my, you, you mentioned earlier, my dad was like a, a walking quote book of quotes and, and finish strong was uh, one that kind of stuck with me. Um, you know, right before he died, we had done a workout in the, the athletic club in Columbus and um, it was a rowing workout and, it was one of those, it kind of went along with that. If you can suffer the pain, the glory lasts forever. Um, that it went with that quote because we were doing cardio on the rower and his thing when I was going was just, you know, he'd bark finish in my ear, finish, finish strong, finish strong. Um, you know, he would will me through it. Um, and those were words he would often say in those uh, very difficult moments of grind when we were in it, in those workouts. And um, they were, you know, his words, but it was something that kind of became, you know, my voice, um, my words, but, it, you know, it was really something he instilled in me that he would always say, but it, it was so fresh after he died that when I gave his eulogy at the funeral, um, that was kind of one of the stories I told was about him, him saying finish strong to me and how he used it in workouts and how you know, essentially, I'm going to use those words to finish this journey in life as strong as I can, because I only get one chance. And um, 
then after that eulogy, my aunt got me this bracelet with finish strong inscribed on it. And I just kind of wore it everywhere. And like I said, it was something he said to me, but um, when I went to those workouts at Ohio state, when I was, you know, doing anything, I would, I could look down and feel like he was there with me uh, talking to me. So um, yeah, finish strong as it was started out as, as some words to inspire through those last gritty moments of, of a, of a burning set of, of cardio or some type of workout and then turned into a pretty strong metaphor for um, what, what I set out to do and, and really life, you know, um, I'll just leave it at that. Forget what else you asked me, Ohio state, something about Ohio state. Uh, yeah, it was about uh, how that helped you become an integral part of the team. But you know what? People can pick this book up to read that story. It is a, another really cool story in this book. I'll, I'll just I'll say I know what you're getting at. And basically, I was new to the team. Um, when I walked on, I didn't talk much to people. But I, uh, I took, you know, we, we had a couple L's and Coach Trestle wanted us to find an answer. Um, and I asked Coach Trestle if I could speak to the team. And I actually shared that finished strong story just, just six months after my dad had passed, uh, not even. And I got up in front of the whole team after the walk on workouts and, and kind of trying to earn my stripes and kind of, you know, shared my heart, shared, shared what it meant to me and, and kind of was vulnerable to the team of, of what I had been going through. And um, yeah, that was, that was nice that I could, I could share that. That brotherhood was huge for me going through, what I was going through to, to be able to lean on Ohio state and, and, and have a place to go focus all that negative energy and put it towards, you know, grinding and, and something positive, you know, I'll always be grateful to have that place at that time in my life, because had I not had something that required so much of me, so much focus, so much presence, like in the present moment, uh, to, to, to be able to have success there. Cause if you're not present, at Ohio State that you just you aren't going to have any success and it just I, I'm so grateful I had that place uh during what I was going through because um it, it was it was a time where I could really escape these constant thoughts about you know my reality which was my dad being gone and um you know I I, I it was a good escape and I and it was put towards great energy and then it almost made me think about him still but in, a, in such a positive way in the, in the ways where he was always present with me and, and I could have him in those moments. Um, it was, it was, so, I'm just so thankful that I had uh, Ohio State football at that time. To say you made the most of that opportunity might be the understatement of the year. You were uh, pretty much integral in every aspect of Ohio State special teams units uh, throughout your time in Columbus. Uh, eventually, uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, you were a captain on the team your senior year. Is that correct? Yeah, I was like, we did vice captains and stuff, but for the most part, I was doing it quite a bit. So you end up carrying the flag out of the tunnel to commemorate the 10 year anniversary of September 11th. Uh, another uh, great bit of writing in this book that I highly recommend people check out. And eventually, you're so good as a special teamer, despite the fact that I think you only played three true defensive snaps throughout your college career and you did a great job at pro day as well that you end up getting drafted by the new england patriots in the sixth round at pick 197 which is almost unheard of for a guy who is almost exclusively special teams and sure enough you make the roster after that and you end up in new england for eight years winning three super bowls in the process before moving on to the giants early on in your time with the patriots nate your special teams coach scotty o'brien told you ebner you don't know what you don't know. What does this mean to you? Well, I thought it was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard uh, at first. And every time I hear someone say something along those lines, uh, I think of him. But, um, you know, um, what does it mean to me? I mean, you know, it's simply that you don't know what you don't know. Um, you know, if you've never driven a car before, and then you get behind the wheel of a car, how would you know how to drive it? Like, you just don't know things that you don't know. And, and that was his, his point was in reference to being in the NFL, playing football at that level, um, the detail involved. Um, you know, we sit there and, you know, as a veteran, you look at all the mistakes rookies make, but 
they don't know what they don't know. They've never played at that level. They haven't done some of those things in regards to football and, and they need, you need to make mistakes in some cases to learn. And uh, if not that, you need to learn from other people's mistakes. And, um, you know, it was just, uh, it was always the thing he'd say to me as a rookie. I, I just remember it was his favorite thing to say to rookies, but it was just, you know, looking back on it as a veteran and, and someone who played a while, it's, it's so true. And it's so true in, in life. I mean, there's, you know, so many people go about, life and in their own way and who's to tell them how to do it but you know without experience you know how can you not only speak on something but how could you even understand it at all because you have zero experience of it and um, from a life perspective you don't know what you don't know makes me want to experience more things so that maybe I have a better understanding and I'm, I'm you know um, well-rounded as a human being because uh, I have more experiences and I and I can you know fall back on that to to describe or, or understand different things and different perspectives and different things about life so that was one that always stuck with me so in the middle of a successful NFL career you decide that you want to try rugby again this time for the United States in the 2016 Rio Olympics where did that decision come from uh it was that one was brewing I mean they you know, I, while I'm doing this whole football journey in the background, um, uh, the Olympics is adding rugby to the Olympics. We're trying to get that that passed, and I'm all, I'm always keeping an eye on it. But obviously, I was playing football, so I was busy with that. But I think it was in 2014 or something. It was uh, it was for sure in. And we knew for certain it was going to happen and that 2016 was going to be the first Olympics. And, and from that moment on, I mean, it was from 2008, it was kind of talked about. It was always like back there. But once it was solidified and I think what happened in 2014 was the USA qualified for the Olympics. And um, at that point, I knew USA was going to field a team in the Olympics in 2016. Um, that was overwhelming um for me uh ultimately you know I chose to to go do that because I didn't really have a choice you know uh if I'm not really one who believes in fate you know then you look at my story and you're like how can you not but the one thing I really think about is that rugby experience in the Olympics when I think about fate because rugby hadn't been in the Olympics since like 1924 you know, we're talking 90 years, 90 some years prior, you know, I'm 26, 27 years old. I'm in the prime of my athletic career. I just so happened to have played rugby my whole life. So I was really good at it, even though I've been playing in the NFL, but like, you know, I still knew how to play rugby. I was able to transition quicker because I had played rugby my whole life. It, it gets into the Olympics. Like I said, right in my athletic prime, the USA qualifies when we weren't even supposed to qualify. And, you know, I just, <clears throat> sorry, I just, I had to do it. Um, you know, I was coming up on a new contract. I had done my rookie contract with the Patriots and I, Bill reached out to, to start uh, negotiating another contract um, before free agency hit. And, you know, we got through all that. And I said to Bill though, at the end, I said, Bill, like, look, you know, I need to, I need to go do this. This is just something that I have to do, you know, from 2014, when we qualified, all I did in meetings was think about what, it, you know, when I needed time away from football, I daydream about playing rugby in the Olympics. And um, ultimately the decision was finalized because the thought process for me was, you know, if I, I told my dad, I'd go play football at Ohio State. I want to make the NFL. I made it. I played out my entire rookie year. Um, I had won a Super Bowl, you know, if, if I never play football again, you know, I'll live. It's been, it's been more than I ever thought it was, um, or would be, <clears throat> but if I don't do this rugby in the Olympics and this, I don't get this opportunity again, every day I live the rest of my life, I might sit and question why I didn't do it or what it would have been like had I done it. Um, and that was something that I don't do well with. I don't do well with things that keep me up at night, you know, knowing I tried and didn't make it 
fine with me. I'll sleep just fine. You know, there's a bunch of other good athletes out there and there's, you know, hell, if, if I give it everything I have and it doesn't work, it doesn't work. I, I can sleep well at night knowing I did everything I could. So just knowing that, you know, I'd have to live the rest of my life wondering what it would have been like. I couldn't do that. And that was the ultimate pusher. So when we were negotiating that contract, I finished with Bill saying, look, this is something I've got to do. I got to go try to, to try to make this. You know, Bill knew they drafted a rugby player. Um, they knew all about me and he wasn't surprised. And, uh, you know, ultimately right away, Bill was super supportive. Go ahead. We'll be here. You know, I figured look, if this is something you can't handle as a coach, I totally understand. It's not, you know, it's a violent sport. If we need to talk about a contract when I get back, that's fine. But, you know, right away he was supportive, you know, Mr. Kraft, the Patriot organization was supportive, so supportive of me doing that. And it was phenomenal. Uh, Bill did, did end up calling me back though and saying, uh, Hey, we need to put something in your contract. There's a, uh, you know, it's not like you're just going sailing. Um, I remember him saying it just like that. So, uh, yeah, but ultimately, uh, I had to go forward and, and, and do that and it worked out. It's not surprising that he gave you his blessing considering the passion that he has for a sport other than football with lacrosse too. Right. Well, and, and, and more so to that point, I think he's a very patriotic person, loves the Navy, dad involved with the Navy armed forces, you know, knows everything about every American holiday. I mean, he is a historian for sure. And, uh, but, but a, a patriotic American as, as much as the next guy. And he, uh, you know, he knew what rugby meant to me and it was, his, you know, going to play for your country is as patriotic as it gets. And he was all about it. Um, you know, and when Bill's about it, everybody else kind of falls in line as well. So I'm glad he was. Yeah, so that was just the start of you getting back into rugby. You detail in the book uh, going through tryouts, the adjustments of going from football back into rugby, the Yakka Yards, which is something people want to read about. But eventually you do make the team, Nate. You get to compete in Rio in 2016. How did it feel getting to take part in the opening ceremonies that year before the games themselves got going? Um, that was a really cool experience. You know, when you, you play football, you just kind of go to the stadium, you play in the game, you do your warm up, you play in the game and you go home and, uh, that's what it's about. But, to be at this festival, you know, where all these countries around the world come and, you know, we're there for the couple weeks before our, or a week before our competition. And then there's this massive celebration of everyone getting there. What a cool thing, you know, um, I just, I'll never forget for me, the opening ceremonies, uh, you know, you walk in and you hear the, the, the different countries announced and the, you know, the whole stadium cheers and whatever. But when we came in as the United States, um, you know, in a, in a different country uh, on a different continent, speaking a different language than the people of, of Brazil, um, and you heard the roar that we heard when the USA was announced. For me, it just hit hard um, because, you know, like you said, I carried out the flag in, in the 9-11 when I was at Ohio State, the, the 10 year anniversary. And, and I'm patriotic as well. But when I when I'm when I'm in a, across the country or across the world, and if you will, in a different hemisphere and, and these people who don't know us at all are cheering for us not cheering for us individually they're cheering for what we represent for the united states of america and you know that sits with me like this is what you represent you live in the greatest country in the world and you're representing that and um you're a part of that and you know none of these people know you and they're they're screaming at the top of their lungs i mean it was a roar in that building just just based on solely on what we represent as a nation um that's awesome and that makes me very grateful for where I do live and, and what I did represent um, in that in in those Olympics and uh, that was a special moment that you know was a something that imprinted on me that will not you know ever leave me for the rest of my life uh, that was very very chilling experience if you will to say the least. And even though you and your teammates fell short of your goal of meddling in those Olympics, it was still really cool to learn how that experience carried over to your next NFL season. The one time you were all pro as an NFL player, 
You guys mm-hmm. also won another Super Bowl that year, that incredible comeback over the Falcons in the Super Bowl. A couple more questions, Nate. You played this last year with the New York Giants. Your season ended prematurely because of an injury. Are you retired for the NFL now, or are you hoping to uh, get back into things for 22? Yeah, no, I've, uh, I mean, you know, I'm not a big social media, you know, person on there all the time, telling everybody what I'm doing all the time. I'm, I'm too busy living life. But um, I, I, I am probably done playing football. I played 10 years. I'm 33. I'm, at this point, I'm so much older than everybody else that I'm playing with. Uh, it, you know, it feels weird. Um, I don't know how Tom still interacts with his teammates <laughs> but um no I, yeah I've, I've played a long time I think at this point um you know it, it's just really it's my body it's not really my choice anymore uh, even this last year it was probably the hardest year in my career physically uh just trying to get myself in a place to play and then obviously you know I only made it about halfway through the season I've just you know at this point I've there's no more tread on the tires there's you know I'm, I'm running on the on the rims and you know I've had to have some surgeries to kind of clean that up and um you know I I, I ran it into the ground as uh you know as my dad would say right you know empty the tank and I feel like I definitely did and then some uh, you know it's questionable if I even should have played this last year but from a physical standpoint I think my body's had enough hopefully uh you know I, I get recovered as I can but you know, at the end of the day, I never dreamed I'd play 10 years in the NFL. When we sit here and talk about this story, uh, they, you know, I was just hoping to get my foot in the door and then I got drafted and then, you know, just just play a couple of years, hopefully get through my rookie contract. And, you know, I was going to play rugby in the Olympics, so I might never play football again. You know, and then you just look back and 10 years later, I played a decade. I was, you know, captain and, and you know, all those years with New England um, just just more than I ever could have dreamed it would be. And, uh, you know, I've at this point, like I said, it, it doesn't feel like it's my choice anymore. It's your body's had enough and, and I'm totally at peace with that. You know, it's, I never really identified as a football player. I mean, look at my story. I was this rugby walk-on kid. And whenever I played football, I was a rugby guy. Then when I went back to the Olympics, I was the football guy. So I just never really identified as, as uh, you know, any of that. So, uh, you know, I, I guess I, I'm, I identify as a capable person that when I put my mind to something, I can achieve it and I believe it to my core and that's who I am, whether it's sports or anything else. And that's my identity and not playing football anymore. What the friendships, the brotherhoods I've been a part of, the teammates, the, the fans, you know, my family who supported me, it's been a great ride, um, but it's time for the next chapter no doubt. And, um, and I'm, like I said, I'm totally at peace with that. All right. Thank you for that answer there, Nate. And last question, uh, you expressed an interest at the end of this book and possibly wanting to become a father at some point to try and pass along a love for your children that your dad was able to give to you. Do you still feel that way about things? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I would love to have kids one day. I'm, I'm not in a position where I have them right now, but I would love to have kids one day to uh, really just kind of replicate or try to, you know, replicate what my father did for me. Uh, you know, if I could give 50% of what he gave to me, I think it would be more than enough. And uh, I, I could just, you know, I'd strive my whole life as a, as a person to live up to the, the character and, and, and stuff that he taught me and uh, you know, I'd be working just as hard to be half the dad that he was to me. And uh, hopefully one day I do have the opportunity to to try to implement not only the, you know, parenting that he did uh, as best as I can, but, you know, be honored and lucky enough to have a relationship that's, you know, like I said, half as close as I was to him, maybe one day with my own child. So um, that's something I'm hopeful for. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, that's in the near future. We'll see. Best of luck to that. He is Nate Ebner. The new book is Finished Strong, A Father's Code and a Son's Path. Get it now in paperback. Nate, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this beautiful book. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me, man. I I hope, uh, like I said, I hope everybody enjoys it, and maybe they can take a small bit from it, whether you're a person striving to achieve something or you're just a parent trying to look to be a, a better 
a, a better figure in, in your child's life or just a better person. And, and you know, it's just my story and I, I hope people read it and feel the authenticity and, and genuineness of, of it all. And I uh, hope they enjoy it. It's a cool story. Well, it definitely impacted this dad of two in that latter manner, Nate. So thank you so much for that, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thank you to Joshua Bates for the video editing. If you have any video editing needs, hit him up on Instagram at Forager Digital. Thanks as always to you for checking us out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.